This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, recorded at our Reagan Institute strategy meeting on February 24th, John Bolton, former national security advisor and ambassador to the United Nations, discusses Russia's military assault on Ukraine, the impact of Trump's presidency on national security, and what America must do to strengthen our defense. Given the events of the day, it's, it's so exciting to have Ambassador Bolton here and we want to make sure his perspectives are, are available not only to those in the room, but to a broader audience. So, Ambassador Bolton, let's just start with something that you've thought a lot about, warned Americans about, perhaps uh, Americans uh, weren't listening as closely as they should have, which of course is Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the fact that we have a land war in Europe where there are well, I don't know how many forces are in Ukraine, but there were 190,000 Russian forces until yesterday uh, bordering Ukraine. First question I want to ask you, because I can't help myself. If it would have been the second term of the Trump administration, would we see the same situation we're witnessing right now, or in your mind, a different set of events? No, the Russians would have been in Kiev long ago. Uh, 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 Trump barely knew where Ukraine was. Uh, he did know that's where Hillary's DNC was. Oh, God. Uh, it was much on his mind. He, he lost the 20, he, he almost lost the 2016 election being stolen by, by Hillary and that server. And he was, he knew that Biden was stealing the 2020 election from him, and which is why he dispatched Rudy Giuliani to, uh, to Kiev to find out. Uh, Trump once asked me if Finland was part of Russia. So, you know, we've got a kind of basic problem here with understanding exactly what, what issues are at stake. Uh, and I think a lot of people have said, uh, uh, including Trump, that, that uh, Putin didn't try to take over Ukraine while he was president. Uh, I think things did not quite come together from Putin's perspective, but I think he's looking forward to a Trump second term. And I just say this uh, 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 about Trump generally, uh, everybody in this room thinks in policy terms and looks at things and says, to achieve this objective, I would try and do this and so on and so forth. When, when you think of what Trump would do on Ukraine or anything else, you have to dismiss that way of thinking entirely because that's not how he, he, he looked at things. Uh, he made lots of decisions as president. I described him in my book as an archipelago of dots. Now, you can try and connect those dots if you want, but he wouldn't even connect them. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the problem. What's the strategic interest of the United States in Ukraine? He wants the DNC server. That's the strategic interest. So you can see why a discussion of what he would have done, I think, is, is a little misplaced. Let, let me do something which I'm, I'm really not qualified to do, which is um, push back and argue a different perspective of what's going on in the mind of, of a President Trump. So, so here it goes. President Trump is somebody who did not take well to being humiliated. President Trump is somebody who, a despot like a Vladimir Putin, would not want to screw with on the basis of they really don't know, that is Putin or any other despot, what President Trump might do. What I'm trying to get at is there is an element of, hey, 
This guy's unpredictable, and as a result, there's a form of deterrence all of its own there. Wouldn't that alone have deterred uh, a Vladimir Putin from the adventurism and the military hostility we're seeing um, from him? No, because there is, there is one consistency uh, in Trump that shows through in essentially every case, and that is uh, his, his bark is worse than his bite. And that when uh, confronted with a difficult situation, although the rhetoric may be intense, the actions rarely were. And when they were, they were only at the essentially unanimous urging of everybody else around him. So I don't buy the crazy um, uh, president Deter argument. De deterrence by crazy, as opposed yeah, no, to deterrence by disclosure. I, 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 I don't buy that. And uh, it, it suits Trump to say it today because by definition, everything that Biden does is wrong because he's not, Trump's not president. Okay, moving on. We're gonna leave the Trump analysis and go to um, the Putin analysis. Um, continuing on this theme that you, you tend to be in the room where it happens. I'm looking around the room here and I'm pretty sure you're the only person who's been in the room with Vladimir Putin. As the world, the West, look at the situation in Ukraine, and they're trying to understand what Vladimir Putin may or might not do. What is that man thinking? What are they getting wrong as they analyze Putin? Yeah, well, I have met with Putin on a large number of occasions. The first time was in October of 2001 when uh, I was the State Department guy who went with Donald Rumsfeld to talk to Putin about what we were going to do in Afghanistan. And just for the historical record, which I think is important, we sat at that very same table <laughs> that everybody has seen with little Emmanuel Macron at the other end. <laughs> this is the long table, right? <laughs> yeah. Normally, that's not the way you sit. You sit across the table sidewise, not, uh, but it's the, it's the same table, and it's been there at least 20 years because it was still there the last time I went there. I think Putin has two uh, strategic objectives that he's pursuing in Ukraine and, and, uh, and, and really more broadly. Uh, objective number one, he told us about in 2005 when he said the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He clearly has never uh, veered from that, uh, and he has in a variety of different ways since then, uh, and probably preparing before then, been trying to reverse that. Uh, I thought for a long time all he really wanted to do was reestablish Russian hegemony in the space of the former Soviet Union. Uh, I think it's clear that, that either I was wrong or he has moved beyond. He wants sovereignty over substantial chunks of it, and he's uh, at the moment, very close uh, in large parts of Ukraine, and, and he may have already achieved it, we don't know, but I'm very worried about Belarus. So that's kind of objective number one. And objective number two, closely related, is weakening NATO. Uh, I think he sees this as a binary choice, a weaker NATO is a stronger Russia, uh, and he's looking for fissures uh, within the alliance now to exploit, to give him greater flexibility, and long-term damage the alliance. I want to go to the NATO question in a second, but let's focus on the first priority, which is Ukraine and occupying Ukraine, getting a new government that looks to Moscow in place, removing the Zelensky government seems to be Putin's intentions here. The American response. Did Biden make a mistake by saying, 
at the outset, there will not be boots on the ground, that is, U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine. Yeah, a absolutely. Look, this, this is the, p the position of the Biden administration, and I think NATO as a whole, is uh, we oppose the invasion uh, of Ukraine unless it's too hard. And, and then we're not going to oppose it anymore. And, you know, th this is uh, uh, where we are now trying to figure out what to do, or even a week ago is like uh, the 20th move of a chess game when the last 15 moves have been wrong. <laughs> the, 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 the fundamental point that has guided American policy since 1945 is we concluded after two world wars that peace and security in Europe are vital American national interests. That, that's what we came to conclude. And we implemented that in a variety of different ways, the Marshall Plan, NATO, variety of other things. But the point of our activities was never to say we protect NATO and we don't protect anything else. I understand the difference between treaty obligations to a treaty state party versus your interest in a non-state party. But the reality is, and, and it's it apparent from any map you want to look at, that a direct Russian threat to the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine is a palpable threat to multiple NATO members. And that if you see uh, Ukraine's statehood sacrificed, the alliance is endangered as a consequence. So this is, uh, th this analysis never took place in the Biden White House, as far as I can tell. Uh, and I do think, uh, you know, you have to go back historically. I, I do put NATO itself and the U.S. at fault as well. Uh, we didn't rush to gain new members when the Warsaw Pact collapsed and the Soviet Union dissolved. They were beating our door down. And we did the right thing by admitting them. But what we and NATO never did do was say, what is our endpoint? So because we, we never came to a final decision on that, we left a zone of ambiguity, a gray zone between uh, NATO's eastern border and Russia's western border. Uh, Belarus, Moldova, and Ukraine in one place, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan in the Caucasus, and then the five Central Asian republics. Whenever there's a gray zone between us and a Russia led by the likes of Putin, the Russians will try and take advantage of the ambiguity, and that's what's going on now. George W. Bush uh, proposed putting Georgia and Ukraine on a fast track to NATO membership in 2008 with broad bipartisan support and without a lot of haggling about, well, is it a stable democracy or is it too corrupt or, you know, we're not, this is not a Boy Scout summer camp jammery here. We're talking about <laughs> the strategic interest of the United States. And there's not an Eastern or Central European NATO member today that in the 1990s when they were admitted was a shaky democracy with a lot of corruption. The British and the French shot it down. That should have been the moment when we said, look, what is the end state here for NATO membership? and recognizing that any country left, we left outside the NATO border would be subject to exactly what we're seeing now. This was foreseeable, and we didn't deal with it. You mentioned Georgia, 2008. First example of where Putin demonstrated expansionism, and the first example where the West basically said, have at it, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. What we did see in 2008, though, is an arms bridge. We had 
U.S. assets flying in to Georgia after the Russian invasion. Do you expect the Biden administration to do the same? Seems to be a conversation around sanctions, far less about military support and aid. What would you recommend we do on the military security front at this moment? Well, my understanding is they are still putting arms in. I think they did surge some additional weapon supplies in the recent weeks. I think it was all too late. Uh, and I don't think it was part of any larger strategy. I think they've made a big deal about uh, plussing up U.S. and other NATO assets in the Baltics and other uh, countries in Eastern Europe. But, but you know, when, when you harden the NATO countries, you're just leaving Ukraine more exposed. And the risk is that uh, uh, once, once Putin gets whatever it is he wants out of Ukraine, and I, I was a skeptic, I'll have to say, that he wanted the whole thing. I thought he wanted the eastern part and the southern part and would leave the rest alone. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that's where he's going to stop. But once, the, once that strategic situation is changed, all of our planning is changed as well. And uh, this is going to be a very significant period ahead for, uh, uh, for NATO. And we've got, we've got to approach it with the understanding that right now we are sitting on top of a failed policy. You know, the administration and the Europeans are making a big deal about how strong their sanctions are going to be, and I think that's great, and I'd make them stronger, and I'd do a lot more. But, but it's proof the policy failed. The sanctions weren't the objective. The objective was stopping the invasion by creating structures of deterrence, and that failed, both because Biden was incredible uh, and because the sanctions weren't strong enough. So putting sanctions on Russia isn't, isn't going to solve the problem. If Putin hasn't calculated the effect, uh, and, and factored it into his calculation, then he's guilty of malpractice. And he may be wrong on this for many reasons, but it's not because he didn't think of it. Well, let, let's stick with that point, and then I want to hit on the Article 5 piece and then go to uh, last week's favorite word in the Wall Street Journal op-ed section, entente. But before we go there, um, Putin's calculus here. In the near term, clearly he's winning. If he goes into Kiev and tries to occupy this country. Has he miscalculated? Well, that's, that's why I didn't think he was going to do it. I, I don't think he needs it. I think he wants more control of the Black Sea. He wants Odessa. He wants the seacoast. It is a basically culturally Russian area, as is much of the eastern part of the country. The line is everything east of the Dnieper River. As you follow it up, there's a point it goes almost in a straight line north. That's, that's his new western boundary, and you take some kind of line up basically straight north to Russia. I don't think he needs the rest of it. I didn't think he wanted it. The, the, our intelligence services are leaking to the press uh, this afternoon that uh, he's got Kiev surrounded. I, I, I don't know that. But they, as the administration has been saying, fear they're going to go in tomorrow morning, uh, possibly uh, Ukraine time. I, I think he's buying himself more trouble than he needs, but, uh, but, but possibly his strategy is to uh, throw Zelensky out and put in a quote-unquote more pro-Russian regime. I don't think that's sustainable without Russian forces there, and I think from Russia's point of view, the cost of keeping forces all over the country is too high. You look at uh, polling, uh, Radio for Europe, um, in terms of Putin's support within Russia, uh, his highest moment of support was 2014, uh, during the last time he invaded Ukraine and Crimea. So, there, there's, there's certainly an element there. Let's, let's imagine that he actually 
moves those forces into Kiev, occupies Ukraine, removes the Zelensky government, gets a government that looks to Moscow. Does Putin then say, this worked, the West doesn't have resolve, there is an adequate deterrence, I will try my hand at challenging this Article 5 NATO construct. Well, I, I think I think it's logical for him to do it at some point. Pol Poland may be the first point of challenge. Maybe the Baltics are. I don't know. I'm I'm hearing from people who know Romania and Bulgaria a lot better than I do that they're getting very shaky about this and this NATO commitment business. I'm very worried about that uh, if if these people have it accurately. Uh, and look, we've we've had uh, we've got trouble with Germany and have had long before this crisis. Uh, uh, Chancellor Schultz has not taken a strong stand on Nord Stream 2. The suspension that he announced the other day is on top of two existing suspensions of Nord Stream 2, one a German regulatory proceeding, the other an EU completely separate uh, policy review, that until those two suspensions go away, uh, Nord Stream 2 wasn't going to progress anyway. And he thinks he's got four months or so before uh, things things really come to a crunch for Germany. I, I believe that the sanctions the EU will announce, you notice they haven't announced them today, hmm. how primed and ready we were for harsh <laughs> sanctions. And what's the EU doing? It's, it's, it's six hours later in Brussels. I guarantee you they're still meeting. Uh, but whenever they finally get around to agreeing on these shovel-ready sanctions, <laughs> it doesn't appear they're going to include significant energy sanctions because they're scared to death that Putin's going to turn off Nord Stream 1. So, you know, we, this, all the talk about NATO unity, uh, I wish it were true, but it's not. And uh, if, if uh, we don't understand that a victory, however defined by Putin in Ukraine, and it doesn't require him to have the whole country to declare a victory, is a, a severe wound to NATO. NATO tried to stop this and failed. Deterrence failed. Um, before we go to, to the China piece of this, it sounds like, in your judgment, uh, Putin, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, is not going to make Europe, specifically Germany, change their approach. We're not going to see a push for less reliance on despots for energy, nor will we see a robust defense buildup. Would that change in your mind? You've dealt a lot with the Germans and, and, and the French and the Italians, the three that we tend to pick on for, for not really responding to, to Russian aggression and have, have the dependency on, on Russian gas, an invasion into a Baltic state. Would that wake up Europe in your mind, or are they lost cause? Uh, you know, in, in the German coalition government today, one the strongest supporter of the right position is the Green Party foreign minister. You know you're in trouble. And uh, it's only because they don't like nuclear and they don't like hydrocarbons. They want everything to run on algae or something like that. <laughs> and, and, and so that, that's why the Greens are our best hope for Germany. Uh, I think that we, we, we know, going back 15 years or more, that the Baltics were probably the first real targets of, uh, of, of uh, concerted Russian cyber warfare. And in a sense, uh, the Baltics, therefore, were the first NATO countries where anybody ever did try and cross a NATO boundary. Now, they've, the Russians have crossed a lot of other NATO boundaries under that definition, including ours. But, uh, but if, if it's a sore spot for 
Putin about Belarus and uh, Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's essentially almost the same sore spot for the Baltics. So, so my guess is they would be the first. Uh, and I've, I've heard the speech from Putin, from Nikolai Patrushev, my, my counterpart when I was in the government, on Ukraine, it's deeply felt. And no, nobody should underestimate that. When you look at Putin's cost-benefit analysis, that means a lot to him. It doesn't mean so much to us uh, uh, in, in the same kinds of terms. But I think the Baltics come pretty close. We're going to open up to questions from the audience in just a couple of minutes, but I, I need to go to the China piece, and then I would be remiss in my duties not talking Iran with Ambassador Bolton. So we'll, we'll do hit on those two before we open up to the to the, to the crowd here. You wrote a piece, as I referenced before, uh, on the entente between Russia and China last week. That was prior to the invasion. Uh, you distinguished between the entente and, and Axis. Um, now that we have Russian tanks rolling through Ukrainian sovereign territory. You have a chance to see how China has responded or not responded. Um, how much does that reinforce the arguments you made and, and what has it added? What would you have added to that argument? Which in summary was, hey, they are coordinating. They may actually work together and they both delight, my words, not yours, at making problems for the United States, dividing alliances, right, and essentially rolling back freedom in the world. Yeah, look, a weaker America essentially benefits every adversary we've got. Uh, and so here's a case where China uh, can lay back, uh, let Russia take all the risk in effect, uh, reap the rewards. I mean, if, if China has no current designs on Ukraine that I know of, but let let uh, Putin focus on something that's important to him. And I think what, what they are providing, really, in terms of cover, is some kind of arrangement that says, if you run into trouble with the West on the export of oil and gas, we will cover you. We will take up the slack. Uh, and it makes perfectly good sense, and it's why Russia is doomed to be the junior partner in this Entente or alliance or axis, if it gets to that point, forever. Um, something I've tried to explain to the Russians and completely failed uh, to say this is not in your interest to get this close to China. I think the reverse would uh, would apply as well uh, if China got active on Taiwan, the South China Sea, anywhere else uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I think it suits them and uh, and and it's it's definitely something that is a force multiplier for both of them. You've shared with us that you think keeping the option open for U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine is, is something uh, we should have done and we should do, if I understood you correctly. Uh, and your, your argument in terms of why we should care about Ukraine and more broadly about NATO and Europe as a priority uh, has led some to critique you as not being sufficiently bold or uh, hawkish enough not a critique you normally get, Ambassador Bolton, yeah, as I'm familiar I, I, with. I, I, was, I was called a dove on China, uh, as I go. recall. As I'm, well. What's your response to the charge that you're a dove on China? I've never been so insulted, I must say. <laughs> I mean, normal, normally the left calls me an uber hawk on everything, so this, this is really problematic. But, but the fact is, when, when you have global interests, uh, you, to defend those interests, you have to behave globally. It is a fact that I think is probably undisputed in this room that we don't devote adequate resources 
to defense, intelligence, and a variety of other things. But the argument that because we are pressed by China, which I have described as the existential threat to the West in the 21st century, we have to give up focus elsewhere is simply wrong. And it's, uh, it's, it's not to say that at any given moment in time, your resources are fixed. And by the way, that last moment is now history. We're now in a new moment of time. You can change things. Uh, because, because that's a view that ignores history. You know, on December the 7th, 1941, at the end of the day, our resources were fixed and a lot lower than they were at the, the morning of the day. And it's, it's really too bad we couldn't muster more resources and we lost World War II to the Japanese and the Germans. <laughs> and then in another historical scenario, there was this great idea after World War II to reconstruct Europe, to repair the damage of the war, to fend off Soviet advances. But you know, resources are fixed, and uh, Congress never approved the Marshall Plan, and the communists uh, took over all of Western Europe, too. And, and you know, then there was the uh, race for space in the 1960s, and Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon. But resources are fixed, and the Soviets got there first, and now they own it. And then Ronald Reagan became president. He said, by God, I'm going to increase the defense budget. I'm going to have new, new strategic theories, like the Strategic Defense Initiative. But... It never happened, and the Cold War is still going on. I mean, how many times do you have to make this point? If you don't have more resources, you get political leadership that makes the case to the American people that we face th uh, threats on multiple fronts, and if we want to defend our way of life as we know it uh, and our interest around the world, protect our allies, not as acts of charity, but because it benefits us, uh, then you do it. And if you can't do it, you're not going to be a world power anymore. The idea that if we shift over here, that we'll be okay over here, means that uh, the Chinese or the Russians won't say, hey, did you notice they've just left Afghanistan? <laughs> Think that might be of interest to us? Come on, if you're going to play on the world stage, play on the world stage. And uh, as, as the... Uh, uh, as, the, as the Air Force used to say in the, in the, uh, the Bosnia-Serbia uh, affair in the late 1990s, if, uh, if you can't hunt with the big dogs, stay on the porch. Well, uh, the Zakon family is pleased that we've reclaimed the role as the only dove in the conservative movement, so thank you for that. Um, let's go to Iran, and then we'll uh, have a, uh, questions from, from the audience here. Well... A, Putin's evading, has evaded Ukraine, Russian aggression, uh, yet the Biden administration seems to think that uh, the way we could address our energy needs is by coming up with a deal with Tehran so we could take advantage of their robust energy production and, and, and solve our energy crisis. What do you think of that? Look, the desire to go back into the 2015 nuclear deal is a religious obsession with Biden. It's, it's for them, it's the, it's the second Obama term's equivalent of Obamacare in the first term. I have the same opinion of both of those achievements. <laughs> and and uh, there, there's simply nothing they're not prepared to give away. I mean, I think we could see by the end of this month, by Monday, that they've gone back in. I think it would be a catastrophic decision. And I, I just want to emphasize why it doesn't even matter whether or not Iran violated the 2015 deal, although they did repeatedly. The concession that Iran would be allowed to enrich uranium, even to reactor grade, is the original sin of that deal. It's a mortal wound. You can't uh, correct it. All this stuff you hear about 
breakout time and under the, the, the situation after we withdrew in 2018 from the deal that they've enriched to 20%, they've enriched to 60%, they're almost at 90%. The physics are that when you enrich uranium to reactor grade levels of U-235, three to five percent, you have done 70 percent, seven zero percent of the work you need to go to do to get the 90 percent. So when you allow them to enrich to reactor grade, they're practically already there. This is, we, when we license American nuclear technology un, under the standards that we normally use to friends and allies, we require that they give up uh, any uh, possibility of enriching uranium or reprocessing plutonium. These are conditions we apply to our allies, and yet we let Iran enrich the reactor grade. It is absolutely insane. And they're going to let them back in the deal. They're going to unfreeze assets, uh, and, and it's going to make an already unstable Middle East far worse. Just a follow-up on what you just said. It's religion for the Biden administration, which, of course, many of those officials were Obama administration officials too, but it also takes the Mullahs in Tehran to sign off on, on such an agreement. Uh, so I'm looking for hands for the next question, but please, uh, do you think Iran will actually sign up and, 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 and you know, to deal with the Biden administration? The, the, they they the got best, burned the last time. The best case is the Mullahs will save us from ourselves and reject it. That's, that's what I'm down to now. That's, that's, that's how close to going back in I think. Ambassador John Bolton, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.